0: Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horse book authors, including writing advice and marketing tips to help you write your very own horse book. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horse books, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade and creative writing makes my spurs jingle.
1: Hi everyone, welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight. Today I am so excited to have Sabina Schleza on the, sh- on the show with us today. Hi Sabina. Hi Carly, thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah, I'm excited too. So I'm going to read Sabina's bio, give you a little bit of background on who she is and what she does, and then we'll get into the fun part which is the interview questions. Sabina Schleza has been involved with Shlaza's salary service since its inception in 1986, together with her husband, Yahin, And since 1996, the addition of their former banker and now partner, Earl Rothery. Earl's son, Jordan, recently married Sabina's daughter, Samantha, after having been together since they were 13. Succession planning at its finest, except that neither is interested in the business. Aww. Sabina's job description involved a little bit of everything. Marketing, PR, Administration, Operations, and Client Services in her role of, as Director of Corporate Affairs. In 2000, Sabina completed her Executive MBA at Queen's University. Sabina attends various association meetings on behalf of the shareholders to keep abreast of what's new and exciting in the industry itself and was a director on the board of the local Chamber of Commerce. She writes regular educational articles for several trade publications under the expertise of her well-known husband, certified master saddler Yahin Shlesa. Sabina has been the recipient of many business awards over the years on behalf of the company, including an award of merit from the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, a Global Traders Award, Women of the Year in York Region in the Entrepreneurial Category in 2000, and Exporter of the Year in 2008 from the Organization of Women in International Trade. Most recently, she was awarded Female CEO of the Year for Women in Business from the International Trade Council in Chicago. She has been on Profit Magazine's list of top 100 women business owners in Canada for the past 11 years. Wow, Sabina, that is one heck of a bio, a little bit of a tongue twister for me, but I, I think I, I wiggled my way through that one. <laughs> so I wanted to start off, uh, we, you know, we've, we've met each other several times and, and become friends through the American Horse Publications Conference, uh, which is always a blast and a great opportunity to network. But I've never asked you, how did you get into horses? Well, it was back in the
2: early 80s when I met Jochen, who was at that point uh, an internationally ranked three-day event rider. And I basically had to learn how to ride, otherwise I would never see him. He was like on his horse before he went to work, he was on his horse after work. And they had, um, the family had about five or six horses at the time, so it was sort of a natural progression for me to learn how to ride. And um, within three months he had me uh, primed for my first jumping show actually. (laughs) So um, I learned very quickly. I mean, I have, I have a natural rapport with animals anyway, and um, I was very athletic. I was a competitive skier when I was uh, younger. And so I picked it up very quickly, let's say. Um, and it was funny because the first time we went out to where his horse was, he said, so you know how to ride? And I said, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I've done some trail riding and you know stuff like that. Very, very domestic. But um, I said, yeah, sure. So he put me on a 17.3 hand competitive horse. And I started going around and around the arena and he got more and more concerned because we were going faster and faster. Right. <laughs> and it was like, when, it, when, we, when we stopped, finally, I kind of got off my knees buckled. I went, so how was I? And then I confessed that I really hadn't actually ridden like that before. <laughs> so
1: so what he must've been impressed then with your ability to ride a 17 a hand horse with, with the trail riding under your belt. <laughs> he, he
2: was impressed. Yeah. Actually his mother was there as well. And so he said, well, he said, I'm gonna get you into your first show. He says, you can do, um, it was like a, it was called like a, a, a relay jumping. I, I was going in with his brother then, like you know he would, ju- he would do the jumps and give me the crop and then I would have to go. So he said, uh, you, you can do that in, Mar- in, in March is the first show, so you might as well do it. And then he got me up and riding and ever since then it was like, yeah, my, my next big
1: love. Oh that's amazing. So it started out a way to to get the guy, right? And then it became a it became a love affair with horses in addition. <laughs> and and then had, it turned
2: into a business, right? He had so many um uh, well he was he was already a saddler at that point. He had done his journeyman papers. So he had uh started working in his own workshop at home in Germany at the time. But we hadn't really thought about making it into a business. At that time it was just always thought that he was going to take over his mother had a tax shop and it was like a little workshop that was attached to her tax shop. And so the plan was always that he was going to take that over at some point. Like the fact that we were going to come to Canada, that didn't come until after we were married and, you know, traveled to Canada to see my parents and um, decided let's let's make it. And he he got a job offer from the Proft family. Um, Eva Maria Neckerman and uh Joseph Neckerman of course was the first world dressage champion in 1966 they had established a huge riding facility outside of Newmarket, which is where we live now. And he actually, um, we, we met them. We, we just drove up basically by chance and um, introduced ourselves. And because we were all German and talking and everything, we got along great. We spent four hours with them. And Mr. Proft said, well, I'm hosting the World Dressage Championships here next year. This is 1986. And if you'd like to be the saddler, he says, you can be my official saddler. And so we thought, hmm, well, this might be the way to come back. I wanted to come back to Canada. My parents were getting older. Mm-hmm. So this would be the perfect end. So then we started the immigration proceedings for him. Like I'm, I have Canadian citizenship, so I got him in within about six months. So that's, what, that's how we actually came to Canada.
1: And, and where were you living before, before Canada?
2: Well, I, I was born in Germany. I came over with my parents when I was very young. And then after university, after my undergrad, I went over to Germany and worked there for nine years, which is where I met Jochen and uh
1: we wow! Yeah, so that, that's amazing. And what a what a break in order to kind of uh, gain this Here's momentum around building the saddlery business. And let's let's talk a little bit about uh, your saddlery business. All of your products and services ensure optimal well being and comfort for both horse and rider, and help to protect both of them from long term back damage. Uh, will you tell us about the saddlery and why you decided to focus? From what I've heard. Um, you, f- you focus a lot on, on, or the focus in the beginning was on female equestrians. Can you talk a little bit about how this got going and how you established a, s- a salary and decided to go that route?
2: Well, when we came over uh, as part of the World Resolve Championships, Mr. Proft gave us a basically a 10 by 10 square foot workshop. So our first business started in 100 square feet sort of thing. And, um, you know, saddles were commodities. There was, they were used in, and they fit or they didn't it doesn't really matter you use pads and, and if they were broken you threw them out there was nobody really here a who went out to the horse like this is what was done in germany at as, an, as a matter of course at that time you go out to the horse you fit the saddle at the horse you look at the rider and and um you actually customize the saddle it's not really it's not really a custom saddle. it's a customized saddle mm-hmm. um and if they were broken or whatever like the gullet plates used in the german saddles were different than what were used in the traditional english english saddles Um, they have more adjustability and so but there was nobody here who could really do that so when we came we kind of changed the way that a saddles are now being sold pretty much in North America Um, the fact that there's been such proliferation of saddle fitters and and more saddlery companies over the years has been you know if if they're honest in large part to what we started because um, nobody did that back then so when we came, we started with the actual measuring of horse and rider, and then actually building saddles on a fully custom base, starting with a tree up. And um, for the first couple of years, you know, Jochen would build these saddles and he'd get me sitting in them and I'm like, mm, I don't really want to tell them they're not that comfortable. I mean, they're beautiful saddles, <laughs> but there was always something that wasn't quite right. And it was not until about the early 90s when one of his clients came to him and, and just started talking about issues she was having constant bladder infections and you know all these things that were going on and that's when sort of a light went off and thought well yeah women are built differently than men why are these saddles still being made the way they've always been made the demographics of the industry have changed now it's you know 75% women riding whether it's Western or English or any of the sports so why have not the designs of the saddles been changed to accommodate that I mean you know it, it, it blows my mind when we still hear people say well there's no difference between men and women you know blah 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 <laughs> yeah well what do they use when they determine skeletal remains you know and they're trying to figure out is it a man or is it a woman what do they look at the pelvis right 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 and the pelvis is the thing that is basically what is sitting in the saddle and what you need to accommodate the uh, the design and the the, man, the manufacture and construction of the saddle there's no wonder and the more we looked into it, the more we found that these were common issues being held and then people sometimes just didn't realize, you know, and, and a lot of the trainers were still men. We're talking like forty years ago now almost. Um, and it was just like, Oh yeah, suck it up. Even Johan when he was teaching, in his, his students were girls, they would complain about, you know, this hurts and that hurts, and we're like, Oh, it doesn't hurt me, you know, suck it up. So that's kind of how we started it and and the more we looked into it and worked more with equine professionals all around, um, you know, um, my personal gynecologist actually, who is also a rider, um, she confirmed that this was going on and we've worked with a lot of body workers now who are dealing with people who have issues, back issues or whatever, they may not even know the questions to ask, are you a rider? What kind of saddle do you ride and sort of thing, you know, so it it comes full circle.
1: That's really interesting, and actually, that makes a whole lot of sense. You know, it's like people, horses—we're not one size fit fits all, right? You know, it's like putting on a shoe that's either too tight or too big. Obviously, that would cause you know problems with your feet. So it's like the same with the the horse and the and a rider. And when you mentioned, you know, I think I think it's really interesting that you mentioned bladder infections. I kind of want to go back to that. Like, wh- how does the the riding fit of a saddle? How, how can it create, you know, that sort of problem in a woman? I'm just curious. Well,
2: when you're looking at the traditional male English saddle, um, men, you have to go back a step further, men can sit balanced on their seat bones. Their pubic bone does never actually have to touch the saddle, whereas a woman, in order to achieve that same straight shoulders, hips, heels line needs to balance on her pubic bone and her seatbone. So it's actually a tripod.
1: Mm. So she's
2: constantly sitting on her pubic bone and on her soft parts,
1: mm-hmm.
2: constant rubbing, constant irritation. Um, bacterial issues happen because of um, like we've had clients who have literally said they are being rubbed bloody. Wow. So they, you know, they have open wounds infection and causes bladder infections. Um, also the fact that, you know you have lower back issues that could be a problem or you're feeling like you're pulled apart because the twist of the saddle is too wide and, and just the way we're built um the musculature on our upper our thighs is a lot more around versus a man's quads and hamstrings are more front and back sort of thing so they have they have a lot um more room in between their legs so they can deal with wider twists whereas women and you see probably yourself, a lot of women, they have a lot of what they call in Germany, X legs, mm-hmm. um, where the knees come together and it's its like, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's its hard for them. So they're sitting on these saddles where it's actually pulling them apart and they're sitting like this versus being able to sit with their legs hanging straight down. It's a lot of those designs. And women have generally longer upper thigh to knee ratio from knee to, to lower uh, ankle. Mm-hmm. so that also creates the pendulum thing, you want to have your leg hanging straight, so you need to have these extended stirrup bars, so that your leg is pulled back in the proper position already from the get-go, like, all these things make you fight your saddle, rather than using your saddle to help the ride.
1: Yeah, and, and thank you for explaining that, I mean, I, you know, the, the, it's so eye-opening, and, and you've, you've written a book about this, which we're going to get into in a second, and you have a lot of educational tools out there to explain, you know, a lot more than you just explained to me, but that is like, I don't think people think about this stuff sometimes. That's why I'm so excited to have you on the show today. And and going back to you know, uh con- thinking about saddle fit and perfect for the horse and for the rider, uh, Chelsea also has a uh saddle fit for life curriculum and uh and saddle fittings that you offer for people who are interested in this. Um, and, and your husband, he goes around the country and he does um, you know, courses on this and he talks about it in, in various uh, situations. And then you also have a certification course for other people. Can you talk a little bit about your Saddle Fit for Life program and, and how that helps you help people get into the right kind of saddles for their body type and for their horses?
2: So SaddleFit for Life is actually a separate company, really it's a separately incorporated entity and we had to form it um, I guess almost 13 years ago now uh, because I mean honestly going back to the biggest mistake we ever made in business was naming the company after ourselves Schlese because um, obviously even SaddleFit for Life is Jochen Schlese. Saddlefoot for Life was formed so that we could work with uh, educational entities like the German National Riding School and the USDF. all of these organizations that cannot be officially seen to endorse a particular product and yet appreciate the generic education so saddle fit for life is all about generic education we have an online academy now with a curriculum um, that goes above and beyond what you normally would learn in a saddle fitting course um, we've we've worked together with equine physiotherapists veterinarians we work together with the university of guelph very closely where johan teaches every every fall semester to their Bachelor of Bioresource Management students, a course in saddle fitting. He works and teaches with veterinarians really all over the world. He's actually in Australia right now, um, where he, he provides the veterinarians with another um, aspect of issues that they can diagnose when they're le- dealing with equine lameness. Oftentimes, veterinarians will, first of all, there's nothing about saddle fitting in the curriculum, um, and the equine vets sometimes see the horses without horse Without a saddle or rider, they're just presented with a horse that is presenting whatever. And oftentimes it's the right hind and then it's hawk injections and everything like that. And they don't even understand or realize that possibly the issues could be arising from the saddle. So coming from the back down rather than from the foot up. Um, so these are things that, that you kind of think like, duh, why has nobody ever thought of them? And it they seems so common sense and so logical, mm-hmm. but obviously haven't. So this is where we've we've come up with um, saddle fit for life curriculum and the certification courses. We we have a course in equine ergoni- ergonomics, which is the basic course, which doesn't make you a saddle fitter, but gives you the ability to work with the saddle fitter. You can you, you become um, proficient in analyzing and measuring the horses, but you can't actually fit the saddles. And then you can go steps further and then become a saddle ergonomist over the course of uh, three to six months, depending on how how. Committed you are to doing the training, et cetera. And we've been teaching these courses now where Salvage for Life is present now on five continents and um, it, it's growing up and was just in the New Zealand Equitana. And we've uh, opened up Australia where since last year. We've, we've started doing courses there and we've got some representatives there who are teaching as well. And we've got some great vets who are on board. Next summer, actually next fall, we're going to be doing a Salvage for Life wisdom exchange. In conjunction with the certified horsemanship Association um, we're going to be offering a course there where we've got some of these vets coming over uh, from South Africa and from Australia um, to teach anyone who's interested in it basically so
1: and I think I think that's fascinating you know it's like I really I really love this conversation about uh, every, uh, like a holistic approach to looking at the animal and the rider you know it's like in the end you know the farrier working with the vet and the vet working with the you know the saddler and you know just everyone looking at the horse as a whole rather than parts to treat you know and, and what could be uh you know the issue really you know it's like saddle fitting I, I don't think i've ever had a conversation with a veterinarian who's asked me how you know how is your saddle fitting your horse could could this be resulting in in some of the issues you're having i th- i think that that is fantastic that you're educating people um on that well, this,
2: this, this right here in our book—I don't know if you can see
1: it—we
2: call this the circle of influence, and this is actually just a small representation of everybody who is involved in the well-being of the horse. But yes, if these people don't speak with each other and confer on a regular basis and work to holistically do what's right for the horse, then everyone is working in a vacuum and in a silo, and and you know. And the funny thing is, is that saddle fit is the indicator pretty much of a lot of other things going wrong. Like, like you can have a saddle that fits one day perfectly. The next day your farrier will come in, reshoe your horse, and then the fit of the saddle, the balance is off again. And it, it's quite, it, it, it's, it's so eye-opening to consider all of this. And then if you don't talk, like communication is key. And then so many times, you know, um, the trainer is God in our industry. You know, obviously what the trainer says goes, but oftentimes as well, the trainer doesn't have the, the advantage of being actually trained in all of these things and we come across this all the time and it's like you know the trainer's saying this and well the pat answer from our end is now that you know um we would never presume to teach you or tell you how to teach your student how to ride you're the professional on that end well please accept that we're the professional on this end and we may know a little more about self fit than you do you know
1: well, that makes a lot of sense. And and that's a perfect segue to start talking about your book, Suffering in Silence, which you co-wrote with your husband. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about uh, why, why did you decide to write this very important book? And uh, what was that, you know, what was the inspiration behind putting together this book? A book is a big undertaking and and tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about Suffering in and Silence and, and hold your book up so people can see the cover uh, those of uh, those of you watching us on YouTube. Okay, well, first of all, Um, This is how
2: it came out, first of all, in Germany, Mm -hmm. Silent Killer, and uh, it basically is, uh, the question is asked, is saddle fitting just for the moment? And then it came out as this version in hardcover, Suffering in Silence by Trafalgar Books, and now it's available in paperback. And with uh, additional chapters and everything but the way we started writing it is because I've been writing these articles mainly under Jochen's name because he is the expert of course and Mm -hmm. he's he's the the name in the industry he's the one who does all of the presentations and and, uh, appears at all the the trade shows and everything and does the talks Um, but because he's German his his English is not that great so I write it The articles that we've been writing uh, over the course of the last 10 years for probably 25 different equine publications over, you know, various times, we thought, you know, it'd be a great idea to consolidate all of these articles on Saddlefit and make a book. So in 2011, I approached Trafalgar Books and, and made a proposal and it was like, well, they weren't really interested at that point. But funny enough, in that summer, Jochen was in Germany and did a course and the um, head of the publishing company, Wu Wai, who did a lot of Gerd Heuschmann's books back then, uh, was an attendee at his course and thought this was a fantastic idea. And she wanted to do the book. So the first thing was that we actually wrote it in German. Now, neither Johann's or my German is actually literary enough. We're both fluent in it, obviously. But to write in the, the manner in which this book needed to be written, especially where it became you know part of the scientific parts of it, we just weren't capable so she got us a, um, a ghostwriter who worked with us and it was literally it was a, I mean you know yourself you've written books it was a difficult difficult birth i can remember we were sitting sometimes young would be on the road uh doing his clinics for for Shleza, and we'd be speaking on the phone at 11 midnight going through points and chapters and then rewrites and you know it, it took way longer and then of course you need to give the credits for all the photographs and you know, all of your quotes, you need to back them up with proof. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, it took a while. Uh, The book was first published in uh, late 2012 in Germany. And then uh, Trafalgar Books was the publishing partner in North America for them because I said, uh, you know, they've done Gerd Horschman's books, for instance, and stuff. So they then said, okay, We'd like to take this. We don't like the title, The Silent Killer. We'll change it to Suffering in Silence, which is great. I love that title. Mm -hmm. And um, so I offered then to translate it, which was way easier (laughs) than writing it.
0: (laughs) Um, You
1: you translated the German version to to English, correct? And worked
2: with an editor then from Trafalgar as well and again then we had to go through all the things we changed a couple of the photos and stuff Mm -hmm. and it's now actually in its third printing by Trafalgar and each each new edition has uh added materials and I've already collected I've got pages here these are my notes already for
1: the next version <laughs> the fourth edition so so as you learn more and as more uh sci- scientific research comes out that then you add to the book and you put out yes. another edition Yeah. and you know then that's fantastic because this is a really important topic and an important conversation, and thank you for the work that you're doing to bring this message to the public and for writing this this book, which is um so insightful and 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 carries such an important message. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what was it like to work with with a ghostwriter, um, you know, it, and h- how did that process go? Because there's three of you involved in writing this book. So did, you know, how did you engage your ghostwriter? And was your ghostwriter an experienced horse person that had any knowledge of, of this topic at all? Or, or how'd that work?
2: Yes, yeah, she was actually an accomplished writer and, and she was proposed to us by the German publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, Wu Wai has since been bought out by Cosmos, uh, which is a new uh, publisher or a long-time publisher, but they bought out Wu Wai, and they've, they've been fantastic. Like They've gotten Johan into speaking at the German Equitana twice now, and uh, they've been wonderful to work with. But their ghostwriter that was suggested to us by Wu Wai was already uh, an accomplished writer and writer. Mm-hmm. And it was mainly Jochen who dealt with her. Like he was in Germany several times over the course of the, the months that we wrote the book and he would meet with her and train her in what we were doing so she would understand what our concept was and what our philosophy was and uh, then would write about it. It worked out quite well. I, I had no I don't even know her personally. I've just dealt with her on the phone and stuff. But um Jochen was quite active in, in the actual writing of it. It was just that she formulated it.
1: Mm -hmm. right because as you said you're you both fluent in german but the literary way of writing to make it work in in a book you needed that assistance which is great and i imagine you know it's really important to have a good relationship with your ghostwriter and it's so important that she you know is a an equestrian and also a writer so that that helps bring bring everything to fruition and then did you hand over the articles that you had previously written to her to give to give her to, to translate or did you kind of like format the book first and then as Johan Johan, or Jahan trained her kind of parallel all that is was there any formula or did you just kind of wing it?
2: (laughs) No I think we we more or less winged it because (laughs) she did not receive any of the articles that were previously published or written Um, funny enough her English would not have been good enough to translate them from English to German.
1: Interesting.
2: So the points made though, we based our conversations on, on the chapters and stuff. And, and we, we prepared the outlines of what we wanted presented in each chapter based on some of these articles. So that's how that worked.
1: Wow. And, and it's, it's also kind of funny. You, you are also sort of a ghost writer writing content, you know, for your husband uh, to put it out there. So you're basically his, his uh, English, you know, ghostwriter to, to get yeah. the message out and, and kind of format it. So it's, it's a ghostwriter is, um, you know, the one that takes the ideas of the person and brings it to life through, through the writing.
2: I'm I'm more or less uncredited. I have not, I don't, I don't have any writing credits on the book. I have translation credits, but she's the official ghostwriter in the German version anyway. And the English version, I just have the credit as, as being his translator. But even his articles, I mean, I write them under Johann Schlese because, you know, he's the one who is the celebrity of the company. He's the one who's the face of the company. He's the mm-hmm. one who, who does the educational presentations at the various trade shows and stuff. So mm-hmm.
1: that, makes, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, he is, he is the face of your company and, and you're backing him up, which is fantastic. Uh, so, so going back to suffering in silence, uh, I, I mean, ultimately, this is a very important topic um is there a message in this book that you really were hoping readers would grasp when you when you put it together and put it out into the world
2: yeah the main one is and you can see it on the the original cover is listen to your horse the eyes the ears the mouth they don't lie mm-hmm. you know, Like your horse your horse is talking to you all the time and it's it's amazing how tolerant they are and how stoic they are i mean honestly I'm glad that I'm not the one who's on the road and dealing with clients because sometimes I would I I unfortunately tend to say it like it is and I would probably lose us a lot of clients because sometimes you just see things that like, oh my God, what are you doing to your horse? You know? Mm. So um that's what we're this book is hopefully uh, you know, a little bit of soul searching. Think about it. I mean, some of our previous promos were like, Does your saddle fit? Are you sure? You know, everybody says, yeah, oh, yeah, my saddle fits. I've been riding the same saddle for years. I've never had it fitted, blah, blah, blah. And i say, good for you. But that's not the reality. Mm-hmm. Your horse has become, and you know, sometimes we'll come out to clients and they'll say, um, yeah, I just got to warm him up 20 minutes or so. By that time, he will have become numb to the pain. So then the saddle fitting can occur and the horse won't buck or rear or whatever. But, yeah, it, it really is. um yeah, a difficult situation when you when you go into uh, places where that kind of thing is happening.
1: Yeah, and and I, what I'm hearing is that you're you're educating readers not only on saddle fit but to be empathetic to their horses mm-hmm. and to look for signals that they're uncomfortable. Uh, what what would you say are a few signs that that people can look for? Um, you know, obviously, read "Suffering in Silence." Read the book. This is an important topic. But you know, if you're just, if you're, for people that are just tuning in and listening to this kind of conversation for the first time, what are some signs that a horse will exhibit um, when it's sore from from the saddle? What, what would you say are some things to look for?
2: Well, very obvious. And I said the eyes, the ears, mm-hmm. the, the tail. Tail swishing doesn't mean your horse is happy; he's irritated. Mm-hmm. Um, Ears back, ears pinned, white of the eyes, uh, you know, stumbling, bucking, rearing, four-beat canters, cold-backed, refusal to jump, things like this. These are are all signs. Your horse is not being stubborn. These are not behavioral issues because of, you know, conscious decisions not to, 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 um, to not listen to what your rider is saying. For instance, um, one of the biggest issues we found is that the tree over the withers over the shoulders will pinch Mm. so this has been in in nature this is where the stallion bites the mare to cause her to stand still drop her back rotate her pelvis ready for mating right okay Mm -hmm. the instinct is to stand still so you've got a gullet plate on the saddle that is pinching at the shoulder of the withers and you've got a rider on top. First of all, horses were never meant to be ridden. Let's let's face it. So you've got a rider on top. The horse is thinking, the instinct is, I've got a predator on my back. Mm-hmm. Okay? So, and this predator or this, this rider now is going, let's go forward. Let's go forward. The instinct is to stand still because the gullet plate's pinching.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: My horse is stubborn. He doesn't want to move. Blah, blah, blah. Smack, smack, smack. You know,
1: like. That makes a lot of sense. Horse. Yeah. And then I would imagine too there there could be situations where the horse is avoiding being saddled, even yeah. you know before you even get going. I imagine that's a signal as well uh, so eye opening um, so i you know I wanted to ask a little bit about you know um, what what has been your experience working with a traditional publisher and working with Trafalgar Square books? i you know I think it's really cool. they're one of the you know traditional publishers that are solely working with. With uh, equestrian literature and, and, and authors, so you know how has it been working? I mean, you said initially they they weren't interested in the book and they didn't like the title, but then but then they ended up being your publisher. How's that? How's that journey been for you? How's it been working with them?
2: It's been great working with them. Um, they've been very accommodating and very open to uh, discussing possible changes for the next, next edits for the next version. And we're almost at the point where we actually are looking into doing the fourth edition because all the third edition books have already sold out. You know, there's just a few left, which is nice. Which is that's great. a
1: good problem to have.
2: <laughs> it's a great problem to have, except I'm thinking, oh my god, I have to rewrite all this other stuff. Blah blah blah. I mean, they've been really good with uh, providing the editors and the guidance, and you know, and consider doing it this way and this way and this way. I mean, it's probably a different situation. I mean, you self-published, which is on the other hand, kind of cool, because you get to do all of it yourself and make all the decisions yourself. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, it, it, at the end of the day, I'm thinking if I write again, I'm probably going to self-publish because I'd rather be able to make those decisions myself.
1: That's great. And well, and I think there's benefits to both, right? I, I, I see how it would make sense for Suffering Silence to go through Trafalgar Square Books because uh, it's, you know, it's a it's very scientific and there's a lot of, um, you know, detailed information and you need, you know, you need the right editors. And because they're, you know, solely publishing horse books, they they have a lot of a lot of that um Re- all those resources in their in their toolbox so to speak, so you know I, mean, I can see how that would help but but in the independent publishing route it, and, and it's cool there's benefits to both but you can you, you're not on a deadline right you you can take your time and, and do things the way that you want to and you also have a say in how the cover turns out I imagine you know you worked with them on your cover but they but they had the ultimate you know say when it came to what that was going to look like is that right yeah absolutely they did but you're absolutely
2: right too is that they they've been wonderful to have because we're part of their no pun intended stable of you know equine books and so we've got that pretty much built in market Mm -hmm. it's uh it's i I, I in no way mean to denigrate anything that that they've done or have been that you know has happened over the course of working with Mm -hmm. them it's been wonderful working with them Mm -hmm. and they're very responsive but i'm just saying if i write another book and i'm not saying it's going to be the same genre or anything but i would consider doing self-publishing because uh you know things if I don't need that kind of babysitting then it might be easier to do it yourself
1: yes which we're going to get into here because I think what you're I've heard a little rumor that you're looking at uh doing a little a little fiction of your under your own name for yourself that may not be horse related so I think that that's where the independent publishing kind of conversation kind of bubbled up from because because with 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 your other book. Um, and, and it's an international title too. It's, it has an international audience. And I imagine, you know, the distribution that Trafalgar Square can offer you was fantastic for that book. But can you tell us a little bit about what you're thinking for your own writing, for yourself, where you're coming out from behind being the ghostwriter for yahin and you're going to do something of your own?
2: Well, what I wanted to just mention yet about Suffering Silence is that um what is also interesting is because we've had inquiries about other countries they want to translate it it's it is good to have actually uh you know a little bit of more clout of a actual publishing house behind you to be able to find the partners to be able to do that so that that is another big plus for going with um you know a formal publishing group um yeah i've, I've got a couple of things on the burner i'm i'm looking into writing a business book and mistakes I've made in business and things I've learned so I've been collecting I've been collecting um, business articles that are then transferable with anecdotal uh, situations that we've experienced so that's one thing I'm working on and then I'm working on doing um, a family history and I'm not quite sure yet what format um, you know whether I'm gonna write it in first person from my point of view or take it back a couple generations from my parents my grandparents it's uh, it's something that I've been collecting as well information on and doing some research on because I think I have a very interesting family history and I know there's a lot of, um, especially in this genre right now, my grandfather was a German Jew and I know there's a lot of genre um, publications coming out right now, all these books about, you know, um, what happened during the Holocaust and and things like that. So it'll be interesting. Um, It's kind of, funny because I never even realized until I was in my twenties that I had any Jewish blood in me. Mm. And I only found out by chance because, um, my mother never, ever, ever mentioned it or talked about it. And my father was a German U-boat commander. So it just, it, it all seems kind of really disparate, you know, like, and, and fascinating. And I wish, you know, somebody says, uh, if you could sit down for dinner with anybody who would it be? And I'm thinking right now, you know, if I could get my father back for just one day or my mother back for just one day, i would just pick their brains until they would be exhausted talking to me. So yeah.
1: I and wow, I, I, that's that's amazing. And and I love how you said you weren't sure if you want to do it in like a memoir fashion or like a historical fiction and kind of give it a, a twist and and i the discovery that's just waiting for you while you, to go dig into the past and all of all of this that's about your life. I how exciting. I mean, and also Difficult topics and also, you know, really reflecting on the fact that you you can't ask your parents, right? And I think that that sounds amazing and I wish you luck and we'll have you back on the show when you, when you get there. You know, we can talk about what that journey was like because that, that's really fascinating. I could probably go back,
2: you know, 200 years almost because um, on my grandmother's side, her great uncle was John Jacob Sutter, who left in the 1840s for the California Gold Rush and founded Sutter Fort which is today Sacramento. Wow. i am mean, thinking like, wow. And I've, I've been looking into that a little more too. And of course, if you're writing historical fiction, you have a little bit of leeway because you don't know what conversations actually happen. So you can
1: mm-hmm. embellish
2: a little bit and make it interesting.
1: That's the cool thing also about being a writer is you can take it wherever you want to take it.
2: I, I wanted to ask you a question. Did you always know you could write or did you always feel that you wanted to be a writer?
1: That's a really cool question. I... You know, I always liked creative writing uh, and I've always liked horses. It's kind of funny how it comes full circle. Like in first grade, I uh, actually wrote a a story and won a young author's award, but I never set out to be an author. Uh, I just, you know, I always carried around a journal and wrote poems and I'd write things down. But I, you know, it's like I had a corporate life. But then all of a sudden, the In the Rain story just, like popped into my head and it started out actually as a poem and then I wrote the entire ending of the book I had the like the beginning this poem and then the entire end of the book and then it's it took me like 10 years to write it because I wasn't taking it seriously I kept putting it on the shelf I kept saying who am I to write a book I kept putting it down but then I came back I kept coming back to it because the story wouldn't leave me alone so then I had the end so I just kind of started at the beginning and worked my way to the end and then you know finally it became a book but yeah no it was never my goal to to be an author it <laughs>
2: so yeah, was never mine and I always I'm not really a great creative writer like I can write essays and um, I mean I this is what I used to do in school and when everybody else was making rough notes and rewriting and rewriting I would sit down on the computer I would write the damn thing and it'd be done like that's amazing and no it's nothing and it's not creative but it's factual and you know i'm thinking I, i've been told too i i have to dumb my writing down a bit because um it, it I, I tend to use too big words and i mean that's that's probably something that's going to be an issue when i write my fun books because, <clears throat> you know i have to remember who the audience is and hopefully you want to appeal to a larger readership and mm-hmm. not everybody knows the big words
1: and and that's really interesting. I think they they say that the the best way to go about writing is to write can, write write at a sixth grade reading level. Like the the topic doesn't have to be a sixth grade le- reading level, something Adele can understand. But but consider that most you know that's kind of where everybody is comfortable reading. You know, sixth grade words, sixth grade you know like big words. A lot of people like I I write and my husband is like my first editor. He'll read me chapters that I've written back. And sometimes they'll say, I don't, I've never heard of this word, you know, so that's, you know, when you work with words, yeah. you have a bigger vocabulary than, than a lot of people. So it's something to keep in mind. That's a really interesting point that you made there.
2: And I love words. Like my father taught me from young and he started it when he was young, learn a new word a day. I have a, I have a book, a journal where I write Every day, I try to write a new word in there and try to use it somewhere in a sentence. And everybody's like, "Huh? What does that mean?" <laughs> Egregious. I thought that was the coolest word. It's a cool word, and then I start using it everywhere.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's right, I, and it, and I think I think that's fantastic. I was in um, I was always in honors English classes, and I had professors that would do the same thing. It's like learn a new word a day, and we would have these profound reading lists of, you know, new words with definitions, just like that. And there are so many amazing words out there that people don't know about.
2: (laughs) I'm trying to find this um I found this text the other day or somebody sent me. It was hilarious. Um this dinosaur is being hunted by these cavemen and he's saying something um long, long, long words and and the one caveman says the other one says, Oh shit, this is a thesaurus
1: I love that. That's awesome. So, you know, I wanted to stick with the book for a second and, and ask, you know, this is a, you obviously offer the settle, uh, settle fit for life program and you know, uh, Yahin speaks at a lot of different um, equestrian conferences like Equine Fair. And you mentioned Aquitana. I wanted to ask, you know, be, how do you reach your readers? Because this is a really interesting Topic that I think more equestrians need to know about, you know. So, how how do you get the word out about your book?
2: Well, um, when we first got "Suffering in Silence" published in North America, what I did was I actually sent a copy to the editors of probably about thirty different equestrian magazines and asked them for um, their time and consideration to read it and write a review or just give us their feedback on it. Um, and because of the articles that have been appearing in various publications you know people were aware of the fact that Jochen was writing stuff I was writing stuff so we um I don't don't really know we we gave a lot of copies away to influencers and to equine professionals that we thought we could we we basically wrote them off as marketing expenses probably four Mm -hmm. or five hundred copies of the book both in you in in Europe and in in North America were freebies just given to people that we asked for feedback on. Mm -hmm. And actually that's where a lot of these um, edits have come from, from veterinarians and uh, other professionals who have read it and made their notes and said, you know, think about this. And this is actually the way it should be and blah, 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 you know, that kind of stuff.
1: That's very smart, and that and that's your your PR background coming out there by uh, sending the books to influencers mm-hmm. and asking them to to review it, and 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 that's also very smart with such a scientifically based uh, context to be able to sh- you know get edits back, edits you know edits and recommendations and feedback are so important, um, particularly with with books of such a important topic, you know, so you you're you're getting valuable feedback which only makes your books even better right
2: that's right and we also um we have a fairly prolific youtube channel we've got i think about 65 educational videos on there and we've had over a million hits on all of them which is great and so people are aware of the fact that we are educating you know even if and and a lot of times people who actually come and buy saddles from us uh will ask them where did they hear about us or what what influence their decision and it's because of the YouTube videos and or the DVD and or the book. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's all about education. Education is so important in any industry today. Um, you know, I, I, I was just recently at a, a, a health spa for facial whatever and it was the first time that the, the esthetician took the time to fully discuss what my skin was, what my skin needed and didn't try to sell me any of her products. I told her what I was using, and she said, well, that's all fine. Blah, blah, blah. Just use this and use this, use this as a generic product and as a generic uh, process. Don't buy my stuff. Just make sure that this is what you're doing. And, of course, wear sunscreen. Not necessarily the stuff I'm selling, but just wear sunscreen. Mm-hmm. And education. And I so appreciate the fact that she was educating me first that I'm definitely going to go back there again, and I'm going to use her because that, to me, is more important than – okay, buy this product, buy this product, buy this product, you
1: know? Mm-hmm. And she spent the time to explain yeah. to you what you needed. And it wasn't about making the sale. It was about educating you and communication. And then, but, but through that, she also built rapport with you, which I think is the way business is actually starting to lean, right? It's, it's like what's in it for the person doing business with you rather than what's in it for me what am I gonna get from this person, right?
2: Exactly, and Johan and, and um, our business partner, Earl, they were at an Anthony Robbins conference oh, probably about 10 years ago now, and it was made very clear that they asked one of the questions and only those two and about four other people in the audience of about 2,000 people stood up and said that their main their main focus was education first. When we come out to a client on a, a on-site saddle fit consultation, or an analysis and 80 point evaluation and diagnostic that is a separate service it has nothing to do with the fact that you know you get as a client you get the printout and the information whether you buy a saddle from us or go to your tack shop and find something that works for you from what they have that's a totally different that's a totally different aspect of the process the education first of all that's what you're paying for the diagnostic and it's you know what you do with that, then that's entirely up to you. That's something different. Then, if you want to buy a saddle, fine, that's something totally different. You know, mm-hmm. the education first of all is key, and a lot of people will go home and think about it and then go, "Okay, actually, you know, I do want something."
1: Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And and another way we're reaching readers too is is the Saddory has a podcast. Can you talk to us a little bit about the the podcast too and what people can can learn there? Well, the podcast is something that we've just started recently. I mean, you know, as a
2: traditional Saddlery business. We've been a little slow in getting on on the social media stuff because it's not something that it's traditionally done in our business. But um, we've started working with uh, various equine professionals. and have been interviewing them. We've interviewed some clients, some trainers, some veterinarians, and so these are now going to be also broadcast on a regular basis as well, uh, just to allow the the reader or the the writer, the viewer, to see. The importance of how the circle of influence works together and all these people are important for the well-being of you and your horse
1: mm-hmm. and and I think that's so valuable and then and also I wanted to share too and I'm going to link to all these informational places your YouTube channel has you know 4.24 thousand subscribers with over a million views. That's amazing. You just started out your podcast. These are both really great educational places, but you also offer for people who are are interested in learning more about this topic, you know, not only can they learn through your book, Suffering in Silence, but you also have a free saddle fitting expert guide where people can read up on saddle fitting tips uh, and learn from your saddle fitting experts. Um, What does the expert guide include and how can people get a copy of that?
2: Um, it's downloadable. You can go onto our website and and download it. It's saddlesforwomen.com. You can download the uh, saddlefit expert guide. It has um, it has a couple of articles in it um, concerning you know gender appropriate saddles for one thing, the male female thing, um, saddle fitting for. Uh, the do it yourself type of thing. It's got like a checklist where you can go through and check on your own saddle what's going on. And these are things that are very easily you can follow along on our YouTube channel if you don't understand exactly how to check for these and what the importance is. It's, um, it's only about 16 pages, but it's got some interesting information on it. And it's also got further resources on it. If you want to learn more.
1: That's great. So there are there's a plethora of, of educational resources that you offer to help people understand how important fit is and, and that's that's really a wonderful contribution to the equestrian community to get to get the word out there. So I wanted to ask you um, a little bit more about you because this is, this is really cool. I know, I know in Canada, we're not allowed to say CEO anymore. So I I would love to have you explain, explain that. But, but you've recently won female CEO of the year for women in business from the International Trade Council at their conference in Chicago. Okay. What an honor, first of all, that's, that's amazing. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and, and how it made you feel to be recognized that way?
2: Well, first of all, the CEO thing, um, I'm not sure if this has traveled down to the States yet, but in Canada, you know, you have to be very politically correct. You're not allowed to call anybody chief anything anymore because of the Indigenous concerns. Beyond that, um, yes, the award was fun. It was, uh, it's always interesting to go to these kinds of events. There were 37 international countries represented there. It was just a two-day conference with a lot of guest speakers and and then the um, gala dinner on the last night where the awards were presented. And we were one of 60 different awards being presented. There were some for expert excellence and, and, um, you know, logistics, whatever. It, it was really quite cool to meet all these people. Um, we made some really interesting contacts, uh, and we're going to be working with some of these people, especially on the marketing side. Mm. There were several marketing companies. One uh, one is particularly involved in in promoting and branding the celebrity CEO, which would not be me because I'm really not active anymore as CEO. We have a new managing director, which is the correct term in, in Canada now, Um, and I'm I'm really thrilled because we've got a really great all female management team now, and it's, it's just fantastic what she's accomplished. She's only been in this position for the last two years and she's got a great team working with her. The morale in the company is, is grown and it's, it's phenomenal because obviously if we are considered the female saddle specialist, we should know what the heck we're talking about. And we should also, you know, walk the walk and have women empowered women at the head so it, it's it's kind of cool you know and as they say it's, it's very lonely at the top so you nobody ever says to you oh you're doing a great job and thank you and blah 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 it's it's, it's these kinds of awards which give you the kind of recognition and uh, perhaps justification for the hours that you spend and the time that you spend and the energy that you spend in doing the job that you do you know.
1: Right. I can, I can imagine, uh, you know, it's like you're the people that you overlook probably aren't walking into your office every day, high-fiving you for, for yeah. a job well done. You know, they just kind of expect that that, that would be the case, or maybe they're afraid to say, Hey, what, job well done. You know, so it's like being recognized is a, a great way to know that you're stepping in the right direction.
2: And yet they always need to be um praised encouraged you know, it's part of, it's part of the yeah encourage mm-hmm. it's part of the building of the morale and, and keeping the the engagement process and the energy levels high but yeah you're right and so Miriam her name is Miriam Boutrosdale she's like um, yeah nobody ever says thank you so now I actually make a point of it every week that I send her a little email and tell her what a great job she's doing and and you know that we really appreciate what she's doing and it's important I mean it's kind of a joke now between us but <laughs> It's like, where's my praise
1: this week? <laughs> that is very important. You know, it's like people are motivated to work harder, better uh, mm-hmm. when, when they are being acknowledged for, for what they're contributing. And, you know, and, and it's so true. I think, you know, also it's a very interesting space to be in as the chief, or I'm sorry, managing director. That That's the title that you use in Canada. You know, uh, so being a managing director, you know, they say the morale of the company does trickle down from the top, so mm-hmm. w- whatever's happening at the top, whether you know you're in your isolated office or not the the message of the company is is coming from you, so you have to be very responsible about how you're you're treating your your mm-hmm. colleagues and the, those people that are contributing to the success of your business yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that that's great, Thank you for sharing that so i you know and I'm really interested in your time as managing director slash CEO still here in the States. Can you share with us what, you know, and I love that you are a female CEO. I think that is so important. And I love that you're, um, you're walking the walk and your company has females in power. I think that's so important. Can you tell us a little bit about what was the best part of being the CEO? And then perhaps on the flip side of that, what was the the hardest part beyond not being acknowledged for for your hard work? (laughs)
2: Well, I, I have
1: to say, I mean, that that's never really
2: been my issue not being acknowledged for for hard work. Um, and honestly, um, just I would probably be unemployable anywhere else because I just like to do things the way I like to do them. And because we're kind of a triumvirate of, of a partnership, Johan and Earl and I, we all have different strengths. Like Earl comes from a financial background and Jochen is kind of the... The creative designer, the artist, the R and D, and and the face of the company. And my strength is the administration, the organization, and operations sort of thing. It all worked out really well. And honestly, between the three of us, we've kind of um, shared the title over the years. Like a couple of years, Earl was CEO, and then I was CEO. And I've and and Earl was the last person in the position before Miriam took over, because I've pretty much tried to remove myself from day-to day operations and I'm trying to retire so I have time to do my other little projects and they can write your books <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I think being in that kind of position you are responsible first of all to your partners you're accountable to your managers and to your your employees and in the beginning it was often difficult I mean when we were starting out you know there weeks and weeks where we never got paid because the important thing is first of all that your employees get paid and that they're happy and mm-hmm. running and
1: suppliers get paid. So the best part, you know, a CEO is working for yourself and, and managing yourself and, and 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 you know running your own company. Would you say that's the best part? Yes, absolutely
2: that's the best part. But
1: you know, again,
2: at the end of the day the buck stops here when things go wrong. Mm. Whose fault do you think it is, you know?
1: Yeah. So then, that on the flip side, that's a difficult part, right? You are responsible for for the well being of the company and how things are going.
2: Right. But again, as I said, because we have a um, we have a very a very well working partnership, which often doesn't work either. I mean, we've been partners now for twenty three years, and we're actually family now because you know his son married our daughter. Uh, it it's it's been sometimes you know we've had we've had our disagreements and our our contentious discussions, but at the end of the day, we all want what's best for the company, and we are all pulling on the same side of the rope. So yeah, you know, it's 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 been good. And I mean we're in our 34th year of business now. And I think that is a level of success which, you know, speaks for itself as well. And we are only going to grow and we're in the on the verge of of making huge new steps. We've come up with, um, you know, we, we're doing Western market now. We've got a Western saddle with interchangeable male female, ground, male female ground seats and actually adjustable bars. So it's pretty much the most versatile Western saddle on the market. It's just for pleasure riding right now. It's not for barrel racing or for, you know, calf roping or whatever. Mm-hmm. But a lot of women who are, you know, aging baby boomers, they like to have the security of a a little more of a snug fit when they're out trail riding or whatever you know um -hmm. let's face it our sport is dangerous so whatever we can do to make it a little less scary Mm -hmm. good and then we've come up with um a saddle which is absolutely truly fantastic it's got the lowest pressure distribution per square inch on the market Mm -hmm. so these are all things that we're working on promoting in the next year or so so we're set to explode again, exponentially. And uh, I think that's, that's a level of success that is attributable to our fantastic people. We've got some great craftsmen, we've got really good managers, and we've got some wonderful independent saddle fit technicians who are out in the field all across the world now, so that's great.
1: That's amazing, and and that that brings me back to a question that I wanted to ask you. I mean, congratulations on your success for for running a company or being a part of a company that is making a difference for both horses and their riders, and you know, in in the equestrian community. Or and you've written this book to educate people, and your goal is to educate. I think that is so amazing. I wanted to talk a little bit about the process of ordering one of your saddles or, or, or getting into one of your saddles. I mean, because what I'm hearing is that they're custom, right? So, so how does it, how does the journey look from someone learning about your saddles and, and then wanting to get into, get into one? How how does that, how does that go?
2: Well, the first step is that you, and I mean, this is the best case scenario because we do have clients that we don't have on the ground saddle effect technicians so we have what we call our long distance fit kit where we ask you to take measurements yourself and pictures and everything and work that way but the first thing is that we do this 80 point diagnostic evaluation on site of you and your horse measurements etc and then we offer you various options it's not always a custom saddle that you need we've got so many different models that can be easily customizable and and you sit in them you, you try how they fit you know They all have various uh, twist widths and and stirrup bar positions and flat positions and cantle heights and and seat softnesses and everything. If you find something that's, you know, let's say 90% perfect for you and works for the horse, then it can be tweaked very easily and then there's your saddle. If you need to have something that's fully customized, which is something that we generally don't do anymore unless the client has pelvic issues like maybe through a um, broken hip or something like that where mm-hmm. they need something specifically customized then we start with uh, we make a plaster cast of your butt and then we use that to form the tree so it becomes truly a custom saddle from the ground up wow. you know, and we do um it's funny we always ask we have to ask how much the rider weighs because that depends how strong and how long the spring still needs to be along the length of the bars of the of the tree. And, um, it's funny because every woman weighs 135 pounds, didn't you know? <laughs> <laughs> so that good. That's kind of a, yeah, you kind of have to be able to eyeball it as, mm. as a technician. Um, yeah. And that's then the saddle takes between eight and 10 weeks to make. And then, um, generally it will be personally delivered by one of our technicians and any necessary last uh, tweaks need to be made will be done then on the spot like your horse's measurements get taken your measurements get taken and everything gets taken into consideration
1: wow that and that's amazing and and your saddles are available in obviously canada germany the united states Everywhere. everywhere so this is anywhere listeners are you are able to learn about the salary and also have a custom, customized saddle yeah. made for you. That's yeah. really incredible.
2: The, the long-distance fit kit has all the instructions of, uh, you know, we ask what you're riding in now, take pictures of what you're riding in now, take a video of what you're riding in now. It is a fairly comprehensive process, but we want for that kind of money and for that kind of an order of a custom saddle, you know, it's worth taking the time to do that. Because obviously, we cannot be everywhere. We are, for the most part, still commuting from head office in Canada to these, we have over 500 locations in the States alone where we do on-site clinics, but there are still locales where we aren't, So, and we don't have people on the ground. That's what we're working towards with Saddlehead for Life, is making more and more independents who are capable then of doing these diagnostics. And they may not necessarily be Schlaze's salespeople, they will just be professionals who can do the diagnostics and then uh, consult with you what would be best for you
1: that's that is so amazing I, i i am so honored to have had you on the show today to talk about these these different things and you know i i am just in awe of what you're doing for horses and their riders and and particularly specializing in um Saddlery for women, I think that is so important. And then I wanted to ask you too, you you also have other products that you have too. It's not just saddles, is that right? Do you you have other products that you offer as well?
2: We have
1: girths that we offer
2: that are also um, uh, based on the conformation requirements of the horse. They're the the narrow at the elbow and a little bit broader across the sternum um, just for better weight distribution and, and mobility. Like the um, these old straight girths, we call them knife girths because they actually tend to roll and those squish under the armpits. Um, we have saddle pads, ergonomically designed saddle pads with the high wither relief. We have bridles, double bridles. Um, that's pretty much it as far as what we sell. We you know, we tend to focus more on what we're doing as saddles. Um, even there we've had consultants come in and say, you know what, you're just the place you know concentrate on one thing we've done that for years where we've become dressage specialists but Mm
0: -hmm.
2: obviously um if you're trying to grow your company you branch out and and increase your market breadth not just your depth Mm -hmm. so that's why we've come up with the western saddles and then the um you know we've got we've we've sold saddles and made saddles for almost every every discipline um and some of them have been more successful than others and worth continuing with but um it's basically those five things, saddles, girths, bridles, leathers, uh,
0: pads.
1: And, and then those are all important pieces to, you know, having a, a custom experience for your horse through your salary. And I'm so happy that you uh, have expanded into the Western saddles because that's, that's what I ride. So there's something available for me now too, which, which makes me very happy. Um, and I wanted to ask you, you know, one more question. This is sort of in the you know, marketing vein. You and I first met at the American Horse Publications conference in Scottsdale, I believe. When it was in Scottsdale, would you uh, talk a little bit about you know how the American Horse Publications organization has been beneficial for your career?
2: Well, the American Horse Publications, um, first of all, they they throw a fantastic conference, as you know. <laughs> it, it's always great to spend time with it. For us, it was basically getting to know the people that I had been working with online or on the phone for years when I'm writing for these various articles various publications. And um, also meeting with, with authors such as yourself, entrepreneurial women who are doing new things and exciting things, photographers. Uh, for me, anyway, it's always been about the networking opportunities by joining these kinds of associations, whether it's uh, AHP or CHA or whatever, USDF. Anytime that you're in business in an industry, it it's worth your while to make the effort to go out and meet the people who can help you get that next step further, who can you know take you to that next level. So, I mean, AHP for me is is one of the best they always have a really great couple of days conference they do some really interesting um what what are they like these uh trips that they take and these Mm -hmm. events that they organize and it's always fun Mm
1: -hmm. I, i agree they they not only during the conference do they have you know seminars or you know where you learn topics on on improving your craft whether it be marketing or writing or networking what have you they also do these uh excursions the day before the conference kicks off where they actually uh build an experience based mm-hmm. on the geographical location that the conference is being held in so you know so uh when we were in maryland in baltimore it was all about um fox hunting and steeplechase and you know the whole experience was around that because that's that's and horse racing uh thoroughbred horse racing because that that was that you know that's part of the experience of the equestrian and in Maryland, right, and then when they were here in Scottsdale, there was um, um, a mounted mounted shooting experience, you know, and then you have you eat locally and and all of that. So it's a it's a really fun. Um, conference for equestrians to be involved in if you're in the um, media, publishing, photography, writing. And I'm so grateful that I was able to meet you, Sabina, there. And, and this has been a friendship that's lasted several years now and continues to grow. Um, here we are doing this interview together. <laughs> I mean, it, it's great to just be able to be connected to all of these really great,
2: and for me, young, exciting, entrepreneurial women who are so eager and interested and engaged in the industry and and doing some great things
1: yeah i I couldn't agree more and 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 we're all going to be it's a it's a it's once you're engaged in the community we're all doing something a little different and touch the equestrian world differently but we all have horses in common so it's 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 a it's a community that really stands together particularly the women it's wonderful that we have these opportunities to continue building our relationships and our businesses together and and share ideas. That's what I also love is that we you know we unite and we share ideas and we talk about what's working and what's not working and we lift each other up. Um, the American Horse Publications we actually had a um, an, an equine author session where we all got together and picked each other's brains and went around the table and talked about what we were interested in and we we talked about Um, Both perspectives what it's like to be on the independent publishing side and what it's like to be on the on the traditional publishing side And it it was a very cool conversation And I I love it when we're all working together to support each other's dreams So thank you for being a big part of that, you know, thank you for being on the show and would you share? uh, with you know, we talked about several places where uh, People can learn more about the salary and and what you're doing in settle fit Can you tell us where people can find you and your books?
2: Um, actually, the book is available at Amazon, If you uh, that's probably the easiest to remember, also at horseandriderbooks.com, and, and uh, on our website, saddlesforwomen.com, or saddlefitforlife, the four is a number, and uh, those are the main places that I guess would be easiest to find. You can also look at our YouTube channel, uh, we also have an Instagram channel, all under Schleza. so take a look and visit.
1: Fantastic, and I will link to all of those places in the show notes, In in pictures, and and you can go check out the book, and and their YouTube channel it has a plethora of information. I would highly recommend going there. I think I spun my wheels there for at least two hours while I was researching for our for our interview. So thank you so much, Sabina, for the gift of your time today. I wish you so much success, and you already have so much success. But um, I'll be here as a resource when you're diving into your own fiction writing.
2: (laughs) Thank you so much, Carly. And I wish you all the best with your series of books and I'm looking forward to your next projects as well.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and writing, just like me. Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com where you can read the show notes and make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? Gallop over to carlykadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at carlykadecreative.com to fill out a request. I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my spurs jingle.